Good morning. We join me in prayer. Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear your word and obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning's scripture is from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your uh, flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, murdered, innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield valuable crops and how patient he waits for autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the uh, prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we, uh, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm amazed every time I watch you read Braille. I think that's so cool. Anybody else? Um, we are um, we're spending this fall considering the letter of James. James, we believe, was Jesus' brother, actually. He wrote a letter, a short five-chapter letter to early, early Christians, really kind of answering this one question. What does it look like to grow into a more mature Christian faith? 
uh, not just to kind of have the basics. Uh, you kind of got the 101, so to speak. Uh, what, is, what does the 201 look like? What does it mean to grow and mature as a Christian? Now, last week we covered some of these verses, and I asked Stephanie to read them again because they're going to be relevant to us again. Uh, the first parts of James 5, James sets up this contrast. You've got the, the very wealthy who are really oppressing and exploiting uh, laborers. Did you catch that? He says, you, um, you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. He has some pretty, pretty harsh criticisms for people, not specifically just for people who are wealthy. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with wealth per se. Uh, The problem is when we use our wealth to get wealthier at the expense of other people. He offered that warning, and we spent a little bit of time looking at that last week. Today, he's going to give hope for people who are suffering. Hope, especially for people in some ways who find themselves to be victims of injustice. And you'll see in just a little bit why I asked Stephanie to reread some of those warnings against the incredibly wealthy. What does it look like, in essence, what does it look like to suffer well? And you can see this as suffering in terms of a a strict, uh, you know, there's, there's injustice and I'm suffering at the hands of somebody else. But you can also broaden this to suffering various life circumstances. What does it look like to suffer well? When you think about suffering in that sense, you realize really probably all of us have suffered in some ways and probably all of us have suffered in in some sense or another at the hands of somebody else. We've all been a victim of injustice somewhere along the way in our lives. How do we respond in those settings? How do we suffer well? Now, it's interesting that James writes this, and he writes very directly to the wealthy, and then he writes very directly to the poor, and you figure, well, who's he really talking to? He's talking to both. But if he knows the poor are reading it, then he writes the sections, kind of section, uh, those first verses, five verses, one through six, knowing that the poor are listening in. It's like he's having a conversation with the rich, but knowing that the poor are listening in. And even in doing that, he's offering something to people who have suffered injustice. He offers really two things. I want to think about in terms of time. There's a present consolation. There's comfort right here, right now in this world. And then there's a future and greater consolation or comfort, a greater comfort that is to come. There's a present consolation and there's a future consolation. And then we'll tie that all up at the end. But look at what he says in terms of the present consolation. So this is, in a sense, if you're suffering, you're listening in to James's pretty harsh language, right? Remember, we've seen that James has some pretty strong language, especially towards the end of this letter. Here's what he says to the, to the rich. Back in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, which is an especially striking image because uh, if you know anything about gold, gold actually doesn't corrode. Like in really high-grade electronics, if you need an electronic piece of equipment to last, you, you plate the connectors in gold because it doesn't corrode. You don't get a bad connection. He's making a point, and he's saying those things don't last, but that speaks to people who are victims of injustice as well. Because if you're a victim of injustice, you might feel something like what the prophet Jeremiah uh, asked. This is Jeremiah 12. He says, why do the wicked prosper? You ever felt this way? Why do the wicked prosper? 
Why do the faithless live at ease? You've planted them, they've taken root, they grow and bear fruit. You're always on their lips, but far from their hearts. It seems like they're getting ahead. But James is offering some perspective here. He's saying those very things, even even the gold that we think is never going to tarnish, eventually tarnishes and corrodes. What does he tell them? He says, listen, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. He's offering some perspective here. And again, we covered this last week, so I'm kind of flying over it at a high level this morning. But he's saying the very thing that when we're wealthy, we're tend to, we, we, tend to, um, we tend to look to, we tend to bank on, those very things won't last. They look like they're going to last, but they won't. The great clothes, the, the, the beautiful, they'll be eaten up by moths. The latest toys we think will fill us up, they'll rot. The wealth that we think will insulate us from all the problems, that gold will corrode. In 2022 language, um, you've got a great portfolio and then 2022 happens. And all of a sudden you find your investments down incredibly since January 1st. In other words, he's kind of paraphrasing what Jesus says in in Luke 6. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your reward. Now again, Jesus isn't talking just about wealth in itself, but he's he's talking about if, if this is your reward, if this is what you're about, what you're after, the thing you want more than anything else, if it's security, if it's comfort, if it's reputation, it could be wealth, it could be leisure, It could be beauty. If that's the thing you're after, if you get it, that's your reward. But what comes next? What comes next? And this is where we get to really the comfort for the the victims, (laughs) to use a loaded word. James says those things testify against them. They will face justice. They will face justice. Now, this is where it starts to seem really, really harsh, right? And to those of, if if we've never been, if you've never suffered deep injustice at the hands of someone else, it seems harsh. It seems over the top. But if you have suffered an injustice at the hands of somebody else, you know that justice is really, really good news. It gives you hope. If somebody is suffering true injustice, then justice is good news. So put it this way. Imagine, imagine uh, if you can, an average citizen in Ukraine who goes out, shuffles out, picks up the paper this morning, and imagine the newspaper said, above the fold, big, bold headline, Putin brought to justice. How do you think the average Ukrainian would feel reading that headline? That'd be incredible news. It would be such good news. You see, because when you're a victim of true injustice, then justice itself is really good news. And that's in a sense, knowing that they're listening in, James is offering some, some present consolation right now, saying, look, I know it's, it's unjust, unjust. I know the world is unjustice, but justice is coming. Justice is coming. There is a judgment. And for people who have been victims of injustice, 
That's really good news. There's hope coming. But it leads to a second response. If I'm a genuine victim of injustice, how do I respond? If God will call the wicked to account, how do I respond? And this is when we really start to get to the heart of the matter of how do I suffer well? James says if God will call the wicked to account, if God will call the wicked to account, that means it's not up to me to call the wicked to account. If God will call the wicked to account, that means it is not up to us, he says, to seek vengeance. Now previously, if if, if somebody had been a victim of injustice, they're tracking right along the first section, verses one through six, and they're thinking, yeah, get him, God. And all of a sudden, James turns the tables and says, yeah, but it's gonna be hard for you too (laughs) because the word of God confronts all of us no matter where we are. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, seek to live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. You hear it there? For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and here he's channeling Jesus and he's actually quoting from Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If vengeance truly belongs to the Lord, then James is pointing out it does not belong to us. God is just. We tend to get carried away. And especially when we're looking to to get justice on our own behalf, we end up overcorrecting and overcompensating. Which is why in verse 7, James doesn't say, you who, who have suffered injustice, get even. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Be patient, brothers and sisters. Be patient, until the Lord's coming. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Four times, in this little section of verses, four times James tells us to be patient. Once he says to wait, and twice he says to persevere. As if he's trying to make a pretty clear point. When you're suffering, when you're suffering, What is a Christ-like, the most mature Christ-like response? The response that none of us gets perfectly but we strive towards? It's not fixing it as badly as we want to fix things. It's not rushing to conclusions as much as we want to rush to conclusions. James says, be patient. Wait. Wait. I didn't actually, Dorn and I don't, uh, we probably should talk more about... um, correlating the, uh, the welcome that he offers at the beginning of the service and the sermon, but did you notice that? That the prayer Doran invited us to pray at the very beginning of the, of the service was, Lord, I wait for you. That was so fitting. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit works. <laughs> James is describing the most difficult response possible, which is not to get back, which is not to get even, which is not to get revenge, but actually to wait. 
to be patient and to trust that God is just and will make things right. Our tendency is to right another wrong, or excuse me, our tendency is to right a wrong with another wrong. But here, James maybe is providing the foundation to what I would imagine most of our mothers taught us about two wrongs and what they do or don't make. The quicker we respond, the quicker we make things right, the quicker we get even, the quicker we lash out, the more likely we are to do more damage than good. On the other hand, the more we're able to cultivate patience, even in the face of suffering, to suffer well, the greater long-term good we end up finding. Consider, just as one example, that perhaps the greatest advance in civil rights in American history followed not a war, not an armed conflict, but in fact an unarmed march across a bridge in Selma, Alabama in 1965. James says, wait, be patient, be patient, be patient. Now, at this point, I I do have to point out, people will often ask, okay, well, what about a situation? We're talking about justice and injustice. What about abuse? What about abuse? That's really not a setting for a sermon. I I can't, (laughs) that's way too personal. That's That's really a question that has to be dealt with over a long period of time, over months and years in a pastoral or, or maybe better yet, a counseling setting. So I can't fix matters of abuse with the sermon. I'm not under any illusion. But let me just offer this, that James does not say that abuse is okay. He doesn't say that we have to endure abuse. And when we talk about being patient, we're not talking about perpetuating abuse. Probably the best response is get out. Get out. I'll just leave it there. He does not permit getting revenge, but he does get out. That's perfectly appropriate. But like I said, you really just can't do justice to a topic as delicate and sensitive as abuse in a 25-minute sermon. But what James is urging us towards is patience. Here's the image that he gives more fully in verse 7. Listen to this. He says, Be patient until the Lord's coming. And then he uses this example. Look how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. And look how patient the farmer is for autumn and the spring rains. I have a friend, Carolyn Clark. She's preached here once. She's a retired, retired Baptist pastor. Um, and I'm part of a pastor's group that she's a part of. We meet every month. We were talking about a similar theme, and she was talking about looking back over her life at the really difficult and challenging seasons of suffering. You know the seasons when you're thinking, like, God, where are you? Where are you? And she said the temptation is to demand an explanation from God right now. Well, she was reflecting, I think, on this verse And she said, you know, sometimes if we got an answer right now, we would mess everything up. If you're from the area, maybe if you're even from northern Maine, you might think about how do you grow potatoes? You know how you grow potatoes, right? You plant your potatoes, you just put a potato in the ground. It couldn't be easier. 
Now here's a question, if you're a potato farmer, how do you know your potatoes are growing? You don't. I mean, sure, like the, the vegetation might be growing and you have to hill them up about halfway through the season and whatnot, but like if you're really honest about it, potatoes grow underground. They're a tuber, they're a root vegetable. You have no idea whether your potatoes are really growing. And you might be thinking, okay, but it's midway through the season and it's probably late July and I planted these back in May and I've, I've just gotta be sure they're growing and so I'm just gonna dig down a little bit and see if they're growing. But you know what, you know what happens? The minute those potatoes are exposed to air, you're gonna ruin the crop. So my friend Carolyn was pointing out, she said, it's, it's so hard in periods of suffering, but just, just let the potatoes grow. Just let the potatoes grow. You can't see them growing, I know, and it's hard when you can't see and you don't know exactly what's happening, but, but I, they're growing, they're growing. And the minute you try to uncover them, at the very least, you're gonna harvest, or at the very best, you're gonna harvest teeny tiny potatoes instead of big potatoes, and you risk damaging the whole crop. Let the potatoes grow, she says. What does it look like to cultivate patience in suffering? We demand explanations from God. God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And we wish God would give us an explanation, but, but maybe God is letting the potatoes grow. And maybe that's why James says, consider the prophets. Look at the Old Testament prophet Job. We don't have time to go through the whole Old Testament prophet Job, but he suffered maybe more than any of us would ever want to suffer. Yet it says, in all of his sufferings, Job did not sin. Or here's how C.S. Lewis put it. This is uh, from The Great Divorce. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but this actually applies to all of what James is saying, so hang with me. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand they will say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Mortals, humans, you and me, will say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can possibly make up for this. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have this and I'll take the consequence. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into the past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin itself. He says, both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven let me read that again. The good man, and this is somebody, he's talking about somebody who, who suffered patiently. The good man's past changes so that his forgiven sins and his remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The wicked man's past already conforms and is filled only with dreariness, and that is why the blessed will say we have never lived anywhere except heaven, and the lost will say we have never lived anywhere except hell, and both will speak truly. He says, and he's, he's kind of working the same theme. C.S. Lewis is massaging these themes in James to say that, that when that moment of glory comes, 
it works backwards and transforms even our present suffering into glory. So be patient. Be patient. We wish, I know, we wish God would bring deliverance like right now. God, like stop this, put an end to it right now. And, we, and why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? You know, the truth is he never tells us. We don't, we don't know. We wish God would just take pain and suffering and sorrow from us right now, and he doesn't, and we don't know why. And he never promises to. Not right now. He says he will. But here's the thing he promises is that no matter what, he's with us, even in the darkness. So, so years ago, this is probably three or four years ago, uh, I was playing with Elliot. We were playing in the front um, in our living room, and she was just young enough that she was learning to toddle and play basic games. So we started playing hide-and-seek. And I'm, I'm feeling spe- especially dad-ish and, and just having fun with my daughter. And so she's finding me. She's seeking me. I go to hide. And so I just stood in the middle of the living room, and I put a blanket over my head. And ha, you know, I'm being so clever. And sure enough, she found me. Now, I expected Elliot to come and find me and to rip the blanket off my head. And I found you, but that's not what she did. You know what she did? She came up to me, and she lifted the blanket and then stood underneath it with me which is such a sweet moment in itself. But you know, it hit me. Like, that's exactly what God does with us. We want him to just rip the blanket off, take away the darkness, flood my life with light, fix everything. Please, like, just make it right. And he says, I will. But right now, I'm going to come and I'm going to stand under there with you. I know you want me to pull the blanket off and that day is coming, but for now, I'm right here next to you. Thank you. (laughs) I'm right here with you. You see, Jesus knows our suffering. He knows our suffering. This little section ends in verse 11. James just, it almost seems like a throwaway line and like it's completely irrelevant, but it's not. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Do you know what the word compassion means? It comes from, from two Latin words that mean to suffer with. To suffer with. To most cultures at the time, and probably to a lot of cultures today, it is, it is shocking to hear about God's suffering, what God would willingly suffer, much less suffer with his people. Isn't God supposed to, to not suffer, to be insulated and protected from suffering? But the Lord is full of compassion, of suffering with You know, very often if you ask somebody who has suffered deeply, if you ask them if they have kind of the gift of some perspective and some years between a really deep period of suffering and where they are now, if you say, what have you learned? How have you changed? I've heard this a number of times. They'll say something like, you know, I have so much more empathy and compassion now for people who are going through the same thing. There's a level of empathy and compassion that you can only gain by suffering. That you'll never understand somebody else's suffering unless you've been through it yourself. I have so much more empathy now for people who are suffering as well. When we ourselves have suffered, we empathize and have compassion on people who are suffering. And who has suffered most in this world? Consider Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus Christ. 
God himself who became flesh, who put skin on, and on whose shoulders rested the whole sin of the world as he hung on the cross. We wish so badly that he would just take it away, and he promises he will, and he will, he will come again and fix it. But for now, he knows our suffering. When he hung on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, Jesus, I say this every now and then, Jesus experienced the, in a sense, the actual forsakenness of God so that when we feel forsaken, it's just that. It, it feels like it, I know, but he is there and he is with us. We feel forsaken, but for us, it's only a feeling because he actually was forsaken. He suffered on our behalf. Why? Because he's filled with compassion and mercy. Because he knew if I can take that brokenness and darkness on myself, I can rescue my people from it. I think this is what James has in mind in the middle of that section in verse 6. This is back when he's, you know, lobbing hand grenades at the wealthy. And he says, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Of course, we can understand how that might be sociologically, but what's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, who was condemned, who was killed, who did not oppose the unjust forces, but who was patient in the midst of suffering so that we might know a day without it. So how do we respond? Be patient, be patient, be patient, and remember that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we trust that you are full of compassion and mercy. We don't always see it. We don't always know what you're doing. We wish we did. But we trust that you're working. Give us the discipline and the courage to be patient and to wait upon the Lord. And even in those moments of suffering, as my friend Carolyn likes to say, teach us to just let the potatoes grow. Make us more and more like you. And would you plant in us a longing for that great and glorious day when Jesus comes again and crushes the powers of injustice and wickedness and makes all things well. All is well, and all is well, and all shall be well. Make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.